Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Here's, here's the question. As we are kind of working our way through the book of John, uh, we're actually going to start in uh, chapter 20 and then um, jump back to chapter 1 here in a minute. Does anybody have that moment where uh, you experience something and you think, this is living? Uh, so I'll just give you an example. How many of you are roller coaster people in here? Anybody? Yes? Yes? Hey, by percentage, much more than the 830 service. So all the thrill seekers are in here. It's good to know, okay? Like if we ever need you, this is where roller coaster people. Like you get maybe, I don't know if it's uh, you, you top the um, first hill there and, you know, click, 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 click. And then that hanging moment and you just think to yourself, oh, yeah, this is living right here. So your hands go up and you scream and you loop or zip or whatever. I love roller coasters. Okay, Just so we know and we can pray for all of you. Um, who is not a roller coaster person in here? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, fantastic. We'll pray for you. Um, for some of you, that is, not, this is, that is not your this is living moment. And I just recognize that that's a reality. It's okay. For some of you, um, and maybe it's not coffee in the morning. Maybe you have a... Um, Maybe you're a tea drinker or whatever, but like it's a porch and a warm, for me, hot cup of coffee, um, fairly early in the morning. And the only sounds really that you, that, that is just like, there's an entire choir of birds that are singing along and you just think, this is living right here. Uh, for some of you, again, back to thrill seekers, my wife has done this. I have not. I have not found it logical, sane, anything else to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. She didn't tandem. She did the free fall thing, like on her own kind of thing. And uh, I just, I, I don't understand this. However, some of you think when you jump out of the plane, this is living. And hope you keep doing that for 10,500 feet. Uh, for some of you, it's actually just surviving the freeway. Like, I mean, you get on and you get off and you're at your destination. You're like, <laughs> this is living. I made it. However it works out for you, um, you get the sense like there is something real and substantive and important. And like there's, there's, an, uh, there's an animating kind of thing that happens inside of me. Here's what I want to say. This is the kind of life, like all of those little things, they are pointers to the kind of life that Jesus wants to give to us. This is really living. That's what he's about. In John chapter 20, um, starting in verse 30, um, Here's what I want to say. This is after um, the stuff that we talked about last week. This is after uh, Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene at the tomb. This is after appearing to the disciples in the, uh, the locked room where they were hiding. This is after appearing to Thomas, okay? Here we are, verse 30. <clears throat> now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Hey, like, we just don't know everything that he did. There was a lot of other stuff that he did. We didn't write it all down. Verse 31, but these things are written. So what John wrote down, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, there's our word, have life in his name. 
He wants you and me to live in a kind of life. It is, if you will, an invitation to life. He's not interested in you becoming part of a religion. He's not interested in you joining a, uh, a group or a movement. He is inviting you to a kind of life. In fact, the entire Gospel of John, 21 chapters, it is all written so that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God and that by our trust, our belief in him, we would have actually life in his name. This is why he wrote the book. Just Let's just walk through it. John chapter 2. He turns water into wine. And not that cheap stuff. Not the bottom of the shelf stuff. Not the stuff that's in the box in your fridge stuff. None of the... Some of you are like, did you come over? No, I didn't. I did not. He's not talking. This is prime time stuff. This is dig it out of the cellar stuff. This is vintage kind of stuff to show for us what? That the kind of life that he has doesn't just take water and make it better. It is a completely different kind of life. In John chapter 3, he interacts with a religious leader named Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, your religion and the stuff that you do, it's all good and well, but you must be born again. There has to be a different kind of life come into you from above. A different kind of life can be yours. You are invited to this kind of life through being born again. In John chapter 4, he encounters a woman with a pretty serious past. She's at a well. And he says to her, I'm pretty thirsty. She's like, why are you talking to me? Can't you help you? I'm not even sure we should be talking with one another. We probably shouldn't. People will put this up on Instagram or whatever. I'm not sure this is good. He says, listen, if you knew who was asking you, you'd actually be asking me for a drink. Because I'm offering you living water. She gets uh, all spun up about this. She's like, I, 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 well, uh, he goes, I tell you what. And then he just reads her mail talks all about her past and does it in a way that she goes back to her town and says, you got to come see this guy who told me everything that I've ever done. Like he talked about all the crazy stuff that was in her life. And she's like, this guy, living water does that kind of thing. In John chapter five, Jesus heals a, a man at Bethsaida, at the pool of Bethsaida. And listen, he does so. And then at the end of it, says this, says this, my father is working and I am working too. Like until now, I am continuing to work, continuing to do the things that I know I'm supposed to be doing. This is the life that we get to step into. In John chapter six, he is the bread of life that comes down from heaven and invites us um, to, uh, 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 to participate in who he is. So much so that Peter looks at him and goes, bro, what else are we going to go. You alone have the words of life. In John chapter 7, he speaks of living water, the, the streams of living water that will well up within us when the Spirit comes to us. So what that means for you and for me, church family, is that if we are followers of Jesus, if we have come to him, if we have put our trust in him, we have a river inside of us. In John chapter 8, he is the light of the world who brings the truth. And the truth, like we just sang about, the truth does what for us? It sets us free. In John chapter 9, he takes a man who was born blind and he heals him. And the guy's testimony is, the life has come to me and I don't understand it all. I don't have a systematic theology to work out. Not really a file that I can put again or a category that I can, that I can make for this. Here's what I know. Out of all the things that are true in my life, there was not life and now there is. I was blind, but now 
I see. In chapter 10, he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and invites his followers to live in abundant life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. In John chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. Mary and Martha are there and they're like, look, man. You're like two days too late, man. Four, four, four. Yep, yep. Looking at a date. Four days too late. Had you been here, it would have been okay. He's going to rise again. Oh, well, I know he'll rise again at the last day. I believe that. No, you don't understand, Mary. Martha, you need to get this through your brains here. I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 12, he is the seed that goes into the ground and dies. And as a result, life and fruit come. In John chapter 13, that life manifests itself to his followers by um, by the kind of loving acts that he did as he washes their feet and commands them to do the same. In John chapter 14, he is the way and the truth and the life. In 15, he's the vine that when we connect ourselves to him, produces fruit through us. In 16, he is the one, man, listen, he is the one who is going away and they, then we will see him again. And when we do, our joy will be unshakable. When the resurrected Jesus comes into our lives, our joy cannot be taken away. In John 17, He says this, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He invites us into relationship with him. In 18, he is the king whose kingdom is not of this world and who is inviting us into a kind of life that this world can barely contain. In 19, he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and declares with his final breath but still an unstoppable, undeniable, um, undefeatable kind of life. It is finished. And in 20, he rises from the dead as the resurrected king. And in 21, making sure that even the traitors are restored and commissioned to a kind of life that Peter would ultimately live. This is the life that he invites us into. That, That particular word that he uses in chapter 20, verse 31 is the Greek word zoe. And I'm just setting that out for you so that you understand. Like He uses something very, very um, like specific here. And, and it's something like this. That zoe is this kind of animating and illuminating power of eternity that is made available to us through trust in Jesus. It's animating, meaning um, it doesn't just kind of take up residence inside of us and then just kind of sit there. Like you just put it in a can and put the lid on and poof. Oh, there it is. Oh, that's very nice. It's not merely a deposit. Like it goes to work in us to change us. It's animating, but it's also illuminating the life that he, um, that he offers us that is available um, to us through trust in Jesus. That life is illuminating. It allows us to see what is real. It allows us to see um, what is real. And, and part of the uh, um, problem is... Uh, Part of the challenge is, is that so often, because of our day and our age and the easy uh, uh, distractibility and, and uh, uh, man, where we, where we have distractions like ready, tailor-made for us right now, they're buzzing in our pockets even, we don't get to see what's actually real. We think what's real is what's in front of us, but that's not always the case. Um, the word zoe is, is contrasted, in, particularly in John, with Two different words. Bios, meaning uh, the kind of physical existence. We've talked about that before, just your physical stuff. But also the Greek word psuche, which is where we get the word soul. 
um, like psychology and that kind of thing. And, and really, what that, that is interactive. So if you've got physical existence in bios, you've got interactive existence in, in suke. And, and here's the deal, is that he contrasts that this way to say there is an illuminating, an animating and illuminating power. And that, that power comes and is rooted in and, and, and brings the weight of eternity to us. And he brings us into relationship with him and it gives us in him the kind of life that is indestructible, just like his is. What, what keeps me from this life? The answer is sin. Sin is what keeps us from this kind of life. Now, here, let me be clear. Not somebody else's sin. My own sin. In Genesis chapter 3, I mean, right from the very beginning, the temptation is to um, take what is not mine, take what is not, I am not ready for, and try to claim it as my own. I mean, from the beginning, this has been the case. And so the, the, the sin, if you will, uh, uh, that, that we um, are tempted to, the sin that we experience, the sin that we commit, these are the things that keep us from that. It's not other people's sin, and it's not other people's choices that affect me. They do affect me. They do. I mean, like the ripples of their decisions do wash up on my shore. But the life that Jesus offers can continue to be lived no matter what. So Paul says it this way um, in particular. And I, I just think this is so good. Uh, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's what he says. My fingers at work. Here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Anybody want that kind of life? We, excuse me, we are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And here, here, here's the money verse right here. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What's he saying? He's saying there is a kind of life that is stained with eternity and it's made available to us in Jesus and we can continue to offer our life to him and in some ways it'll feel like death, but really what it's doing is it's bringing life. I, I, am, I got all this stuff going on, but listen, the weight of that is not going to kill me. People have made choices and the tsunamis are kind of going to wash over me, but in that moment right there, it is going to be okay. Why? Because I have the life of Jesus in me and as he cannot be taken down I ultimately will not be taken down either this is the invitation it's an invitation to life well how, how do we how do we get there well John chapter 20 but these are written so that you may believe oh there we go believe Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. It's why um, it is available to us through trust in Jesus. It is trusting Jesus that allows us to live in and experience this life that he is offering to us. It's not a religious exercise. It's not... um, I had a conversation this week with one of my really, really, really like super nerdy friends. Um, and he had just finished a big, thick book on epistemology, which anybody uh, just read a book on epistemology this week? Did you, 
Yeah, me neither. But we had a good conversation about what he did. And he said, uh, in, in the book, one of the things he was talking, he and I were talking about and dialoguing about faith. He said, I think one of the things that we um, have to get past is we think that faith means that I imagine that something is real and therefore that's faith. Faith doesn't reside in my imagination. The reality that we are talking about is more real than anything that I could imagine. Faith gets past the words of, of, oh yeah, maybe this could be. I could foresee an instance in which this is possible. It gets past that too. I have an inclination to this and I am beginning to experience this as a reality. And so I just want to say to us here, when it comes to us putting our trust in Jesus, we are not just imagining some things. We are not creating a scenario in which it might be plausible that we are putting our faith in some, some, some substance, into some reality, into some content. And what specifically, John points to these two things. We'll take them in reverse order, but I just want to point them out. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is a Christ. If you were here a few weeks ago, we've talked about this, seems like multiple times this spring. Christ is the, uh, um, the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. That Christ is the Messiah. That's what we're talking about here. And then the next phrase, the Son of God. The Son of God. Our, the, the, our faith has content. And that, that, con- that substance has those two things in it. So uh, back to John chapter 1. This is where we'll kick back up here. John chapter 1. The first thing, the first part of the content or substance of our faith is this, is that Jesus is divine. He is God. He's not some God. He's not a God, little g. He's not meh, God. I'm sort of God, not semi-God. He is God. Jesus is divine. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's a straight claim, verse 1, right there. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's a, he's a creator. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, Jesus is divine. And what I want to say and just remind us of is that the earliest followers of Jesus, this was their confession. Like their confession of faith was exactly this. Thomas, right before the verses that we read in chapter 20, Thomas, when Jesus is like, hey, Thomas, come here, come here. Feel my hands right here. Put your hand in my side. I'm not scared of your doubts. You don't need to be scared of asking the question. Come, experience this. Let your faith get past the imagination stage to an inclination and experiential stage. Come, Thomas, come on. And what did Thomas say? My Lord and my God. I don't think he was exclaiming something. I think he was proclaiming something. My Lord and my God. Thomas, even Thomas right there. Paul said it this way in Colossians 1, and it's just beautiful, so I want to read it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Here's what he says. He, that's Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Now, when you think firstborn, think preeminence. That's what we're talking about here, okay? For by him, 
all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Can we just, like, can we just marinate in that for a second? I mean, like, down to your atomic level. The electrons are spinning around the nucleus because God is holding them together. If he sneezed, we'd be in trouble, people, yeah? And if God will hold the atoms of your life together, don't you think he'll hold the rest of you together too? In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn preeminent there from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent first. For in him, the fullness, this is where we get, for in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul is not saying he's like sort of God. No, no, no. He is fully God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. In Hebrews chapter one, the writer to the, uh, the, the writer of the uh, letter to the Hebrews says it this way. Long ago, this is chapter one, verse one, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiant. This is Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty on high. So um, Jesus is divine. And this is the earliest confession. And all of these confessions specifically tied to, I don't know if you saw it, but specifically tied to redemption, specifically tied to um, uh, forgiveness, specifically tied to the the work of Jesus um, in our lives. So here's the question. Okay. Thanks for the theology lesson. So what? Jesus is divine. That's cool, I guess. So what? Okay, here's so what. Because it does matter. This is the content. This is the substance of our faith by which we experience life. So what? Number one, it is who he is. It is who he is. He is not who I want him to be. He's not. He is who he is. Um, He is not who I wish he was. He just is who he is. He is the one who reveals himself to me. He is not something that I make up or uh, design as a figment of my imagination or uh, design as something that will somehow make me feel better therapeutically. It is who he is. This is God. Jesus is divine. But secondly, it's why we also, not just it is who he is, it's why we follow him. If he's God, then he has the authority to say to you and to me, live this way, not that way. Don't go there, go here. Do this, don't do that. He has the authority to do this. In our particular world, um, he alone has that kind of authority. And in our particular world as a church family, um, we close every service like this. Let's go from here like what we said and what we sung was true. Let's go live like, if you've been around, you know the rest of this, like what? Jesus reigns 
over everything. We pull that right out of Matthew 28, verse 18, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, you think that's not some crazy claim. Go, go to your office tomorrow and just walk in and be like, hey, everybody, all authority in this company has been given to me. Let me know how that works out, okay? I just want to know. It's an absurd claim unless it's true. There are two options in the world. There's the option where Jesus is in charge or there's the option where somebody else is. And here's the deal. He says he is. He died and he rose like he said he was going to. I have bet my entire life on the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that he is in charge. Listen, I know some of you have too. Here's the deal. That's a good bet. It's a good bet. He is He has the authority. It is why we follow him. And lastly, it's it's how we have hope. It's how we have hope. I've mentioned that all of the scriptures that we read, specifically about uh, how he is divine, they all tie to redemption. They all tie to redemption. Because he is divine, he can go, he can lift perfectly, And he can go to the cross sacrificially and carry our weight, carry our sins, carry our darkness, carry our shame, carry all the the terror and horror that comes with all of that. He can carry that and carry it redemptively for you and for me. You don't have to look it up. I can't remember if it's in the Bible app or not, but in Psalm 49, verse 7, here's what it says. Listen. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Truly, no man can do that or give to God the price of his life. So uh, this is a conversation that happens every so often. Um, Some nice people come knocking on my door. Dark tie, white shirt, dark pants, bike helmet. We'd like to talk to you and maybe have a Bible study with you. Oh, yes, let's do it. Their language has co-opted the the term son of God. They they think son like I have offspring, like I have sons. And so I, I typically just cut to the chase with all of them. Same way with the other folks who show up. Uh, and they're like, hey, we'd uh, like to give you some literature. It's called the Watchtower. Same conversation with both of them. I know. I said, you fellas, y'all may be nice people. Y'all may be good people, like genuinely good. I know how deep and dark the depravity runs in me. I know what is in me sometimes and what comes out of me sometimes, I know just how horrific my own sin is. And if you take the best guy who's ever lived and you stick him on a cross for me, I'm telling you, he doesn't have it in him to bear my sin. It's too dark. It will consume him. 
So if you're telling me that I have to hope in just a guy, even a very special guy, to carry my sin, I'm just going to keep doing whatever it is I want to do because I have no hope. But if God came to earth and climbed up on a cross for me to bear my sins, he can do it redemptively. That is my only hope. Pretty short conversation after that. Truly, no man can carry the sins of another or offer to God ransom of his life. The only way that we have hope is if Jesus is divine. If he carried your sin and he carried mine, he can do it redemptively. The second part is that Jesus is the Messiah. Skip down to chapter, uh, in verse 1, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. So let's just stop there. Jesus is the Messiah. What does that mean? Well, he is the promised one, and he is the anointed one. The promise began at the very, very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had stuck it in the ditch, man, excuse me, God shows up, and he talks to him, but he starts with this promise. Actually, to the uh, he, he promises to the serpent in front of Adam and Eve so that we would know that this is a reality. Hey, after, here in a little bit, there's coming somebody. A seed of a woman. And the serpent will strike his heel. He's going to crush your head. It starts there. And what we figure out as the story unfolds is that Noah, he rescued some people. We need a better rescuer than Noah. Abraham followed God. Not perfectly. We need a better follower than Abraham. Moses, good prophet. We need a better prophet than Moses. We need a better priest than Aaron. And we need a better king than David. And the good news is Jesus has come to us. He is the promised one and he is the anointed one. And secondly, what happened when he came, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He was rejected. Why? Well, they didn't like his version of power. That's part of it. They didn't like his version of power. I mean, even his own disciples. Like the religious leaders who stood to lose a bunch of earthly power, they really didn't like it. Government leaders, they really didn't like it. But even his own disciples, James and John, who, I mean, they're famous. They got books in the Bible, right? I mean, like this is important stuff. Um, James and John actually send their mom. Send their mom. Hey, mom, will you go talk to him? Uh, Jesus, on behalf of my sons, they want to know if they can be your secretary of state and vice president when you come into your kingdom. Is that cool? You, you don't know what you're asking. And furthermore, my father, he's appointed such. But, but I mean, if that's not comical enough, like after Jesus is raised from the dead in Acts chapter 1, they come to him. He's told them all of this stuff about the kingdom of God. They come to him and they still say, like his disciples say, hey, 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 is now the moment where you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They loved a kind of power that Jesus was not in love with, in fact, refused. Their kind of power exalted them. His kind of power, the kind of power he's bringing him, exalts him. Furthermore, they didn't like him. They didn't like him as Messiah because he revealed their sin. 
In John chapter 3, we'll get to it here eventually, but in John chapter 3, he talks about when he comes into the world, he's bringing the love of God and no condemnation because the condemnation for those who don't believe is already on them. Why? Because they love their deeds and they stayed in the darkness as a result of it. But, verse 12, that's not the end of the story. He was rejected by his own, but, but, he was received by some. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the rights to become children of God. He wasn't just making people into citizens of a kingdom. He was also bringing them into a family. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood. So let's just pause here, work this through. He was, they were born not of the lineage, okay? Your genetics don't make you a follower of Jesus, your genetics don't allow you to see that he is the Messiah. Your, your genetics, um, the things that you have inherited, so to speak, do not make it better for you spiritually. Who were born not of blood, uh, nor of the will of the flesh, meaning not of normal processes, nor of the will of man, meaning um, not imposed by parents, who, frankly, we would all choose for our kids. But they were born of God. They were born of God. The normal course is that life leads to death. But when it comes to Jesus, his death leads to our life. And this is what he has invited us. This is what he has invited us into. How, how does this happen? By receive, but verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, to believe him and to receive him, to um, let him in, take over. Let, let him become king of your life. Let, let him uh, put the kind of life that he is offering. Let him put that inside of us. It is an invitation to life through trusting Jesus. The whole thing gets summed up in verse 14. And the word, remember the word? The word who was God and the word was with God? Back in verse 1, the word became flesh. That's Christmas. I mean, we're, we're the week after Easter, people. We're talking about Christmas. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Meaning like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, like the stories that are here are stories so that we understand the kind of God who is in pursuit of us. This is the story that is being told. He came. He lived among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. In John, when we talk about seeing the glory of God, listen, Jesus talks about it. When I am glorified, it means when he's crucified. We like the glory part where we're like, yeah, come back and let, rid the world of all evil and bad things and awesome. Jesus is like, we'll get there, but the first glory comes when I am crucified for the sin of the world. And we beheld his glory. That's what he says. So we got to see it with our own eyes. We know that it is finished because we saw him do it. Christmas came. Jesus came. He lived among us. And he ultimately was crucified for us and rose again. And then it says, um, we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace 
and truth. You want to know what kind of Jesus is in pursuit of you? What kind of life he wants to bring to you? This life that is animating and illuminating and marks us, stains us, and sustains us with the power of eternity. It is a life full of grace and truth. Some people think you've got to have one or the other. Not in the kingdom you don't. You can have grace and truth because our king came full of grace and truth. So I'm going to close by asking you this question. Which do you need more? Grace or truth? Like today, in this moment, right here. Not which do you want more. We all want more grace. Like, oh yeah, come on, come on. No. Which do you need more? Do you need God to speak to you a word of truth that will ultimately set you free, even if it's hard in this moment? Or do you need God to bring the kind of healing grace to you that makes you whole so you can live out the life that he wants you to live? Which do you need more? Grace and truth. Jesus came full of both for you and for me. I'm going to offer a prayer for us. And uh, we'll take a moment and respond. We'll close out services, but let's, let's pray first. Uh, Father, in Jesus' name, you who came full of grace and truth, um, we, your people, who have been marked by you, uh, who have been experienced the kind of life that you desire, you and I, we, oh God, please, um, let us be the kind of people who receive the power from above, who receive the kind of life from above, And Holy Spirit, as as we put our trust in Jesus, I pray, oh God, I pray. I pray that we would experience exactly what you have said. By believing, we would have life in your name. Grant us that for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.